So um, I'm from Africa Check, and we are a fact-checking organization that is actually based in WITS. We're in the journalism department. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, a uh, few people coming in, we'll let them sit down. Okay, um, for those that just joined us, my name is Kate Wilkinson and I work at Africa Check. Um, who is Africa Check? Um, like I said, Africa Check is a, a fact checking organization, and depending on how much you follow fact-checking, you'll know that fact-checking has been around for close to, close to a decade as a formal sort of um, exercise separate from journalism. Um, and some of the more um, well-known fact-checking organizations include organizations like PolitiFact based in the US and Full Fact in the UK. But Africa Check was established in 2012 with its first office in Johannesburg based in the WITS Journalism Department. And over the years, we've expanded. Um, currently, we're based in four African countries. So we have a team in South Africa, a team in Kenya, Nigeria, and then in Senegal. And here you can see the heads of all our offices, um, along with their research staff. There I am in the corner. Um, and what this part of our organization does on a day-to-day -day basis is fact-checking. So we identify claims which are made in the public domain, um, which have some sort of importance, which matter, whether they're right or wrong, and then we check if they're correct. And that involves verifying statements, looking at statistics, speaking to experts, and then publishing reports on our website. Supporting us, we have a larger team. So um, in the, the, just to the left, our South Africa, you'll see um, our team based in Johannesburg. And we also offer through that team training. So specifically when it comes to fact-checking, whether it be in newsrooms or on radio stations, um, if you would like any fact-checking training to make your journalists um, better equipped or better able to verify information, that is something that we can talk about. Um, but I thought the, the first place to start would be um, a discussion about you know, what are facts? Because if you look at the front page of our website, you'll see three of the stories that we published most recently. The main one being a story um, where we fact-checked a statement made by a washing detergent um, company, OMO, who claimed that 57% of children um, in South Africa are raised without fathers. Another example, we have a claim that um, the Western Cape created 75% of jobs in South Africa, and then a claim from our Nigerian office, which is that 80% of Nigerians lack safe drinking water. And we found that it's actually worse than that. So when it comes to fact-checking, we first have to identify what can we check. Um, and this is very useful when you are reporting on a story, when you're interviewing someone on air, um, and you're trying to identify what statements they are making that you need to follow up on. And the first thing you need to do is you need to distinguish between fact and opinion. And I have a, a very um, appropriate um, comparison to make here, but first we'll start with the definition. Um, an opinion is based on a belief or point of view. It is not based on evidence that can be checked. And then alternatively, we have a fact, which is something that can be checked and is backed up with evidence. So the appropriate 
example I was giving is soccer-related. So here we have a fact on the left, which is that Cristiano Ronaldo was named FIFA's best men's footballer of 2016. We can check this. We can check with FIFA, we can look at rankings, and we can verify whether that is correct or not. When it comes to opinion, however, it's a lot more difficult. So a belief could be that Lionel Messi is the greatest footballer alive today. Depending on who you speak to, that opinion could differ. And there's no way that we can fact-check that opinion or verify whether it's correct, because it's not based on objective evidence. It's not based on evidence that stands aside from belief. Um, it is rooted in belief. So we publish reports. We look at statements made in the public domain. We publish them on our website. But then also, we do a lot of work on radio um, as well as television. And currently, we have two partnerships with two radio stations in South Africa. We also have partnerships um, in our other countries, in Senegal and in Nigeria. Um, however, in South Africa, we work with 702 and we work with Power. And what we do on these two stations is that we, we take fact-checking to radio. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that um, the penetration of the work that we do online and in print, um, if, we're, if we're honest about um, the situation in South Africa, is not very deep. Um, we're looking at people who have access to the internet, either on their smartphones or on computers, you know, want to read an 800 to 1,200 word article that's quite academic and sometimes a little bit boring, but sets the facts straight. Um, whereas when it comes to radio, we can take fact checks, which you might, not, you might not want to read, but we can actually put them into a much more accessible format. We can make them much more interesting and we can engage with um, with, li with the listeners. So here we have two examples. Um, recently, um, on 702, for example, we are on a Zanya Masaka show every second Monday from two to Hoppers two. And recently, we looked at statistics about the extent of white poverty in South Africa, um, because I'm sure um, South Africans in the room will remember that a few weeks ago there was quite a lot of um, you know, action online about search results when you googled squatter camps South Africa, and the fact that the majority of the pictures which came up suggested that informal settlements in South Africa were populated by white people. So we have um, fact sheets and fact checks on our website which have looked at these different issues. So we were on air just breaking down the statistics so that people had accurate information to inform the discussions that they were having. And then a while ago, on Power, we, we fact-checked a tweet by Gareth Cliff, um, who claimed that South African women were the fattest in the world. Um, and we looked, at the <laughs> we looked at statistics from the World Health Organization about obesity and um, broke down the facts, um, and we found that he, in fact, was not correct. Um, so those are just two examples, um, but I think what I, what I want to talk about today really is fact-checking can take a lot of time. Um, it it's, would be very easy for me to stand up here and to say to you that you need to go back to your radio stations and your newsrooms and you need to fact-check every piece of information. If someone's on a show, the host needs to fact-check everything that they say, but the reality is that um, often that doesn't happen, and often there just isn't the time to, to make it happen, especially live on air. 
Um, but I want to talk through the ways that you can bring fact-checking into, into your newsrooms. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to, to maybe you know, encourage thought around is the role, um, can I just ask, um, how, many, how many people here are involved in the, the newsrooms of radio stations? I see one, who's, who's a producer here? Any hosts? Okay, what are other people doing? What are you doing? Yeah. You are? Programming. Okay, anyone else that does something interesting? Okay, no? <laughs> Maybe you don't think it's interesting. Um, but the first thing I wanted to, to sort of challenge you with, um, and it's not a challenge that is specific to radio, it's really a challenge that I think is um, a challenge to all media in the current environment, is that you need to remember on a daily basis that your, the job that you do is not to act as a loudspeaker to public officials, to government, to interest groups, um, and just disseminate information. Really, the role that you play is, is to, to get news out there, but also to ensure that your listeners, your readers on your website, you give them the opportunity to know whether the information that they're hearing is accurate. And there, there are a lot of different ways that you can do that. Um, but I thought that the f how we could think about this would be to listen just to the beginning of an interview that was on 702, where the mayor of Johannesburg, Herman Rashava, was speaking about hijacked buildings. So I'm going to press this and we can have a listen. But for now, let's turn to the executive mayor of the city of Joburg, Mr. Herman Mashaba, who joins me on the line. Mr. Mashaba, good morning. Hi, good morning. Good it was good to see you there yesterday. Yes, it was a lovely day. I wish uh, you could have an event like this every day. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, you can organize it and we'll be part of it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, obviously, we've got to look at other alternatives, but I think really the credit uh, to 702 and everyone uh, involved and really great for city. Fantastic. Let's talk about the, the campaign that the city now has embarked on. It has declared war on building hijackers. And you have identified up to 85 buildings that you say uh, you will be targeting here. Firstly, just give us the, the background to this campaign. Look, Golani, uh, the city of Johannesburg, when I inherited just over a year, just another year ago, discovered a massive challenge, crisis actually, a humanitarian crisis uh, where buildings have been hijacked uh, over the last few years. Why we led uh, the breakdown of law and all that happened under our watch is still a mystery to me. 300,000 of our people today are looking for houses in the city. And uh, in terms of those that cannot afford, uh, fellow South Africans, the city of Johannesburg, I'm sitting at the waiting list of 152,000 people who expect uh, me as, as an executive mayor to find them accommodation because we're sort of where economy has been underperforming the last uh, few years. So more and more every day our people are getting desperate. Then I discover in the process, I've got the city of Johannesburg that has been allowed to decay over the last few years. And now we've now embarked on a, on a massive campaign and we are going to intensify this rate. 
to do the profiling of uh, the people in these buildings. Because uh, on Thursday, and you will see the, within the next month or so, I'm going to be out marketing very aggressively, requesting for proposals uh, to the developers. Anyone who's interested uh, to develop uh, high-rise uh, affordable accommodation for our people, us as a city will do everything possible to assist you in building. As long as you can tell us how much you're going to be investing in the city of Johannesburg, how many units you're going to be creating, how, how much you're going to be charging our people, because I want affordable accommodation. I want small business areas in the inner city, but I'm not going to allow the, this hijackers, the slumlords, uh, to be part of this. Now, what is frightening to Alanya about this, uh, this scenario is that as we're doing this rate, we, I realize a minimum of 80% of the, of, of the people in these buildings are, are foreign nationals. Some of them here legally, some of them illegally. Now, we okay. So if you if you didn't catch the last bit, what the mayor said was that a minimum of eighty percent of people in these hijacked buildings are foreign nationals. Some of them here legally, some of them here illegally, and he goes on to to talk. Um, but this statement doesn't. You know, there, there's, there's no moment of pause in this discussion. And you would have heard at the beginning of the audio clip that there are a lot of statistics thrown around. Um, but this statistic specifically is quite an important statement because there have been um, a lot of claims made over the years about the percentage of people living in Johannesburg's inner city, um, first of all, who are foreign nationals, and second of all, who are either here legally um, or are undocumented. And considering um, South Africa's history with xenophobic attacks um, and violence against foreigners, this is quite an important statement and could be quite a serious statement to make, um, especially on a radio station like 702, which has quite a, a wide reach. Um, and it's something which could inform or misinform listeners and possibly have an effect on their perceptions of the city, the perceptions of their neighbors in the inner city. Um, so there are a few ways that we can tackle this. So my first suggestion, um, if you are involved with um, interviews on air, if you're a producer, if you're a host, is to think about how you may not have the, the time you may not have the, the facts or the knowledge right in front of you to fact-check statements that you're hearing people make on air to your hosts and to your listeners. But I think that there is a responsibility on hosts to help their listeners understand um, the reliability of the information that they're hearing. And it really doesn't require much. For example, there are a number of questions that could have been asked after that statistic was made. Holani um, could have said, hang on, Mr. Mayor, you've just said, you know, a minimum of 80% of people in hijacked buildings um, are foreign nationals. And he could have asked a, a number of questions, very simply, how do you know this? Um, the, you know, the, the, mayor, the mayor then could have explained how he knows this. Um, another question you can ask, whether it comes to this statistic or claim or another one, is what year is that statistic for? Because if you have someone, a government official, an advocacy organization on air making claims, if you ask them what year that statistic is for and they can't tell you, that is a very good clue. It's a red flag to your listeners that they should maybe, you know, think twice before accepting this information. Because if the person sharing that information doesn't know what year it is from, then they might want to check it out before they believe it. 
Similarly, what is the source of that figure? If they can't tell you what the source is, then there's a problem. They might, if they, this might still be a problem if they can tell you the source. Um, but it's these sort of questions where you can give an indication to your readers about how confident the person is about the information that they're sharing. You can also ask them, in this case, you know, Molani could have asked, how, you know, how did you reach that 88%? How was that calculation done? Or how sure of you are that, how sure of you of that figure? Um, or, you know, if you ask all these questions and it seems to be the situation where they're actually not that sure, you can always say, you know, well, why don't you come back on air tomorrow and you can explain how you calculated that statistic. We'd love to have you back to unpack the numbers. And, you know, either they can come back and they can explain the numbers to you or they decline to come back and then that's a good indication to your listeners that there could be a problem with the statistic that is being shared. Um, so the second thing that you can do um, is to develop a resource library. And this is something that um, really should be in all media houses um, because it, it's not particular to fact-checking or verification in radio. It really is should be the bedrock of any reporting. And that is to make sure that your journalists have information that is easy to access on important and topical issues. So what you can use to start building that resource library is you can use resources that we have put together at Africa Check. So we have fact sheets and guides. Um, when it comes to statistics, the fact sheets are probably where you want to start. And it really, what it does is it takes complicated issues like demand for land, wealth in South Africa, poverty numbers, the black middle class in South Africa, um, and it breaks it all down, it tells you where all the information comes from, it disaggregates it, it tells you where to look for more information, so that if you are reporting on a, you know, a, a, a speech by a government official and they mention a poverty statistic, you as a journalist know that you can either go to your media house's resource library or you can go to Africa Check, and very quickly you can compare the, the claim that was made with the available statistics. And it's in that way that you can very quickly do a reality check so that you know whether there could be a problem. Um, and if you are you know, interviewing people on, um, interviewing to include people to include in a news bulletin or in a, a segment, th the best thing to do is to always ask people where they got their information from, because it gives you an opportunity then to follow it up, but like I said, if you don't have time to follow it up, it's a good indication to the listener of the reliability of the information that they are hearing. And then the second thing you can do is you can actually use fact-checking to create content. So what could have happened in the mayor's case um, is that that statement could have been made. They could have asked, you know, where did you get that information from? And depending on his answer, they then could have fact-checked it. And they could have produced an amazing segment um, where they interrogated this claim. They could have spoken to inner city dwellers. They could have spoken to foreign nationals. They could have looked at the available statistics. And you would have had a really innovative, original piece of content um, based on something that was said on, on air. Um, so what that would involve, um, this, this PDF is on, our, um, on Twitter. We have the high-resolution 
um, copy available there, and it's something that you can print out, you can stick up next to your desk or in your newsroom, and really what it does is it takes you through the steps that you should typically follow if you are trying to verify information. So the first step is to identify the source. So those are the questions we spoke about earlier. Where is the information from? That's your first step. The second step is to follow the trail. So what other information is presented in the claim itself, and you know, can that information put you on the right track? The third step you want to do is you want to verify the content. So check the numbers, the calculations, and if you're looking at images that are being shared that you think might be a bit dodgy, you can also check them there. Then you check the context, and then you speak to the experts to get extra analysis or context so that um, you can share that with your readers so that they get, or listeners, so that they, they get the bigger picture. So what I actually want to do is, um, very quickly, I'm going to go through this in 10 minutes, so we have 10 minutes for questions, is I'm going to take you through how we fact-checked the mayor's claim. Um, I'm, we actually fact-checked um, a, a slightly different statement because the mayor has made this claim in a number of different ways, and the statement that we fact-checked um, was actually the claim that as many as 80% of inner-city residents are undocumented foreigners. And this is a different claim because in his interview he referred to 80% of hijacked buildings being occupied by undocumented foreigners. So the first thing we did was we identified the source. And there are a few sources here. You know, the first one, the, the main one, is the mayor himself, Mr. Mashaba. Um, the second sources could be that was an article in Bloomberg. It could be the statement by 702, because it's possible that he could have been misquoted. Maybe he actually didn't say that. Maybe he, he said something different and it was interpreted differently. So always make sure what you're fact-checking is what the person actually said. So we got in touch with the, the mayor's office, but first we wanted to break down the statement. So this seems like quite a simple statement, but when you actually try start trying to break it down, you, got, you get lots of questions. As many as 80%, where is that statistic from? Of inner city residents, what qualifies as the inner city? Are undocumented, how does he know they're undocumented? Foreigners. How, do they, how does he know that they're foreigners? So you can see how you actually have about four different pieces that you have to try and figure out before you can fact-check the statement as a whole. So we got in touch with the mayor's office, and that's the first step in any of the fact-checking we do, because we always give the person who made the statement the benefit of the doubt. We never start fact-checking assuming that someone is wrong, because if you assume that someone is wrong, you're more likely to be led down a path of finding information that disproves what they're saying. So we spoke to the mayor, and his office said that they considered the inner city to be those wards, and that his spokesman said that the mayor's statement had to be understood in relation to his experience with hijacked buildings in the city. And he referenced um, Cape York, which was a building that was formerly hijacked, and there was a raid where of the 343 residents in the building, 303 residents were identified as undocumented foreign nationals. And the spokesman said that is just over 88% of the inhabitants. So we can already see that there's a little bit of a misalign here between the evidence that is being used and the statement that is being made. The raid of one building in the CBD is being used to state that 80% 
of all residents in Johannesburg's inner city are undocumented foreigners. So now we have to see, well, is there any evidence that could could support the mayor's claim because maybe you know this is a bit of wonky thinking but maybe he's right and he just doesn't know it and there could be evidence so we then look at source information so the first thing we looked at was a survey a survey by the Gauteng city region observatory and they have a quality of life survey and the most recent one was conducted in 2015-16 and about 30,000 people were surveyed and they looked at um, where people came from, and they did a breakdown of the wards for, uh, for at ward level for the provinces, and we asked them to, to pull the data for exactly those wards that the mayor referred to. And what they found was that 26.2% of people in those wards had migrated to Gauteng from another country, 25.4% had migrated from another province, and 48.5% had been born in Gauteng. So do you think this supports or refutes Mushaba's claim? Refutes it. Because this data shows that of the people living in those wards, just over a quarter of them were actually from another country. It speaks to whether they're born outside the country. It doesn't speak to whether they're documented or not. <laughs> Another source that we looked at um, was actually um, a report that was compiled by the city's um, social development department. And you can see that it, it came from the office of the executive mayor. And it was a, a report on the raids of five derelict buildings in Dornfontein. So this is only one ward. So we need to be careful about the conclusions that we draw from it. But it found that of the 183 residents that were profiled on, in raids, 30.6% were found to be foreign nationals. And 47% of the residents were undocumented and they were detained by Home Affairs. So does this source support or refute the mayor's claim? It certainly doesn't support it. It's not enough to say that he's wrong, but we're looking at a document from the mayor's office which looked at five raids, and it found that just over 30% of the people were foreign nationals. And then the last source we looked at, and this is a great source, if you're not using it, jot it down, um, and it's called WASIMAP, and what it allows you to do is it allows you to break down census data to really very small um, areas in South Africa. So if you want to know how many people over the age of 60 live in a certain district or ward, this is where you, you want to go. It, it's really fantastic. And we pulled all the information um, of whether people were born in South Africa or were foreign-born for the wards that the mayor's office identified, and we found some interesting data. In some, in some wards, like um, Fordsburg and Mayfair, um, 70, almost 74% of people who live there were actually born in South Africa, with only 18% being born um, outside of the country. And in some, in some wards, like um, Berea and Bertrams, it, it was more of a 50-50 split, with, with around 43% of people um, who lived there being born outside of South Africa. So again, you ask the question, does this data here support or refute Mashaba's claim? No. So 
We then had that data, and then we go to the experts, because it's one thing to look at numbers, and it's another thing to understand them. And that's where experts can be so useful, because they give you the context, they tell you if there's a problem with the data, and here we spoke to a professor from the African Center for Migration and Society, and he said that stats they say may undercount the number of foreigners in South Africa. And that's because if you're a foreigner, and maybe you're undocumented, and you're living in a community, and stats say knocks at your door, maybe you're not going to answer the door. If you do answer the door, and they say, where are you born? You might be worried that if you tell them you weren't born in South Africa, they're going to you know, tell the police, or tell home affairs. So the numbers that we look at are, mo are probably an undercount of the foreigners. But there's no data that shows that 80% of people in the inner city are foreign nationals. And also, there's no reason to believe that the estimates are off by that much. Um, and he added that he thought that the mayor's statement was an absurd and dangerous distortion of the truth, and that while there may be buildings or even blocks in Johannesburg where there are 80% foreign-born, um, the inner city remains primarily South African. And so that's what we published on our website, a fact check with a verdict, all of this information is in there, it's hyperlinked, so anyone who wants to actually look at the data themselves and understand how we reached that conclusion can do it. Um, and we, we don't want to be the only fact-checkers um, on the block. Um, we want to encourage other people to do this. So, you know, if, if th this is something you can do, and there's a huge appetite for it. It does take time. Um, I think this took this is going to put people off, but I think this took at least two weeks. This is not a quick turnaround. There is seldom a fact check that gets done in less than three days. Um, but when it comes to important topics and issues, um, you're not just creating news, you're actually, you know, you're, you're, you're creating accuracy, and you're helping people understand important issues better. So if this is something you want to do, we can help you, we can organize training, we can come and show you how to do it, or, also, all of our reports can be republished for free. So if you see a report on our website that you think your, your listeners or your readers would like, you can republish it in full. There's credit information at the bottom about how to um, attribute it to us. And you can use any information that we have um, in your news reports and your stories to inform your work. Um, so please follow us. <laughs> that way you can stay up to date. Um, and yeah, I just really encourage you to, to really, you know, take the role of interrogating the information that you disseminate seriously, because often uh, powerful people, whether they're in government or the private sector, they like to take advantage of the fact that they can put whatever information they out there with, out there without it being interrogated, and you really can act as a stopgap between misinformation reaching the public, um, and I really think that. All of us as media practitioners have a responsibility to do that to the best of our ability. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate. Are you aware of any websites or sites that generally have a proclivity towards disseminating fake news? Um, so I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think. Uh, fake news is defined differently by different people. There are definitely fake news website, websites which create very um, you know, sensational, outrageous stories to drive 
viral traffic to them, and then they generate huge ad revenue. So that's how we conceptualize fake news. Um, what we generally see more of when it comes to media houses and news websites um, is often, you know, just making mistakes. Um, and, and no one is immune from making mistakes. We make mistakes in our work, um, and all journalists will make mistakes in some capacity. Um, and really, I, th I think the test to them is, is then, you know, open and transparent corrections and informing their readers or listeners of what went wrong. Um, when it comes to politicians or public figures, um, everyone gets it wrong at some point. We don't use the word lie. We will never accuse anyone of lying because it requires knowledge of their intention to mislead. So we will say that someone made an incorrect claim, um, which can sound a little bit academic, um, but it's an important distinction for us. And across the spectrum, everyone makes incorrect claims, everyone gets it wrong. Um, the, the, the real credit to that person or organization is if they're honest about it and they, they correct themselves. Okay, great, a great opportunity to invite questions. Okay, I'll take this thing. Hi. Hi. Um, I've got three questions, yes. right? Um, first one, uh, who do you fact check? Is it uh, just South Africa only? Mm -hmm. um, next, the social media now, and you know, more, now more than ever, uh, radio is picking information up from social media. You'll see a post, and then uh, you know presenters would want to sort of take it to air. But obviously, there's fact checking that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. What advice in terms of steps should one take mm -hmm. uh, to to what's getting to a point where now it's uh, broadcast worthy and sharing with the listener? Mm -hmm. And thirdly, it says independent fact checking. I just want to know who you're affiliated to. Are you affiliated mm. to UN or or who you sort of um, mm. um, are working with? Thank cool. You. Sorry, Kate, so would you prefer us to take um, yeah, let's, um, let me just a sequence of to questions? Quickly. I'll respond individually quickly. Um, who do we fact check? Um, anyone who has made a statement in the public domain where there is some importance. Um, it could be a politician, a union leader, a business leader. It could be a journalist. Um, as long as, you know, it's important that that information is checked to be correct, we will check it. Um, unfortunately, the steps from reporting from social media are the same as were outlined here. You, you, have to follow the, you have to follow the steps. Um, if you can't follow the steps and verify the information, then I would advise that you convey to your listeners or your readers that there is still some uncertainty about whether this is correct and you're working to try and verify it. Thirdly, we're affiliated to the International Fact-Checking Network. Um, we have to abide by their principles. Um, and if anyone feels that our fact-checking falls short of those principles, they can refer that to the network um, for adjudication and review. Okay, I wanted to ask um, a question, but um, before I do that, let me quickly refer to what you said yeah. about um, making mistakes. Um, one of your colleagues, David Ajikobi, used to be my colleague too. Mm. He works with Fact Check, Africa Check um, um, in Lagos. There's a partnership with Nigeria yes. Info. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we do use um, your website, and I follow you on Twitter as well, ah, your company. Great. Um, recently, you, there was an error on some story you published, mm. and you had to withdraw it and mm. apologize. And the media today suffers being truthful about mistakes and then labeled fake. Somehow it judges your credibility. Mm. Um, 
this wasn't my original question, but I have to ask if that affected um, Africa checking in a way at all. And um, to my original question, um, you said on air we can apply a few tips, say the five step to quickly fact check mm. a thing. But sometimes, especially with politicians and people with an agenda, when they do tell you these things that are not very correct and you can't check it immediately, you're speaking to them on a live show, it means you have to take it back. Mm. But if an actual check takes about um, two weeks mm. to just fact check a statement, mm -hmm. We can't afford that on live radio. Yeah. So what's the window we can work with to give some credibility to our job without dedicating two weeks to that very situation? Yeah. Um, okay, so the first thing, making mistakes. This was the story where we had a problem. Um, we published it, um, and within a few hours, people had got in touch with us to say, we think you're missing some context here, and you need to clarify it. Um, we could have left it up while we clarified it, but we did not want to leave a story up where there could have been a problem, and we did retract it. And we left the link with a retraction sign, um, and it turned out that the verdict didn't change. We still said the statement was correct, um, but we added quite a bit more contextual analysis um, to explain why the claim was correct, but actually quite confusing. Um, I think in some quarters, yes, it might have knocked our credibility. Um, it was a hard day on social media. Um, but in some ways, we saw quite a positive response from people. We had a lot of people tweeting in our defense saying, you know, at, at least they've pulled it down. At least they said there's a problem. They're correcting it. Um, and I also think it's a sign of humility and being humble. Um, often fact checkers are seen as the police of media. Um, and you can be quite scared of them and they can seem quite arrogant like they always have it right. Um, and by being honest about it and transparent about updating it, we showed that when you get it wrong, you pull it down, you correct it, you put it back up, and you put a notice saying that it was changed. Um, and we, what we expect of others, we have to expect of ourselves. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, what can you do, I think these questions are so important. Um, Put the onus on the person making the claim to substantiate it. Ask them, how do you know that? What report does that come from? What year is it from? Because even if you don't fact check it, if they're not sure about that information, the listeners will be able to tell from their answers, and you'll be able to tell. Um, and then if you think there's something to dig into, then maybe you can start looking to fact check it. OK, we'll take two last questions. A quick one. Um, I noticed you mentioned that you work in a number of uh, African countries. And my understanding of Africa is that uh, data collection mm. or continuous data, uh, keeping of records is not as good as it is elsewhere. Mm. Have you had an experience in those African countries where you know, data is inconsistent or there's lack of information for certain things that needed to have been documented? Mm. And how did you go about that you know, in any of your experiences in any African countries that you work in? Yeah, so that is a huge, a huge issue. Um, it's also why we started in South Africa, because we knew that, first of all, the environment and the attitude towards media was very open and free, and we could test it in the country without concern for our researchers. Um, and South Africa, although there are problems, it does have quite a good access to data, as well as the quality and quantity of data. So in South Africa, it's relatively easy. We still do have problems, but ac across, the across the continent, it varies. Um, for example, trying to, so in, in South Africa, for example, every year from the Division of Revenue Bill, 
you can tell exactly how many kilometers of road have been retarred, how many kilometers have been resurfaced. Um, you know, there's enormous detail. We tried to fact check a claim about roads in Kenya, and that information is just not available. Um, and you end up having to do um, access to information requests and fighting with officials. Just a few weeks ago, we had a government official tell us that we had to come to the government office and pay for the information. Um, so you're always working within these constraints. Um, but you have to remember, it's not your response. To make a claim, you have to have the data. And if someone has made the claim and there is no data, their claim is, unpro their claim is unproven. Um, and if you can't find data to verify it, if their, their claim is baseless, then that is a story in itself. So, yeah, I'm Thaisium from Brazil, Hello. so it's very nice to see another context different than mine. But one thing that's happening is that this year we are holding elections mm. and lots of websites and audio messages, voice messages through WhatsApp and everything have been spreading. And you just said about our responsibility as journalists to always fact check and bring that to the public and everything else. But how can we make this like a habit for everybody mm. to just pay attention to that mm. so they can really take another thought before just believing this news? What's our responsibility on that? Um, I think our responsibility is, is like I've said, um, but I also think that once you start the process of writing or reporting in a way that makes your readers or listeners conscious of questioning, conscious of interrogating and conscious of not just accepting, it affects how the public thinks. And we've seen it in the countries we work. Um, we've worked in South Africa now for six years. and. This is anecdotal, but I do think that with fact-checking becoming more prominent, the public have become more like fact-checkers. And if we can show our readers and listeners how important it is to question through our reporting style, um, they will do a lot of the work of questioning public figures and parties and politicians for making statements and whether they can substantiate them. Cool. I apologize if we could not take any more questions. It's because we're out of time. However, Kate, thank you so thank much. You. I um, will stick around. So if, come get my card. If you want to chat to me about working in your context, I'll stick around for a while. Fantastic. And it was really educational. Thank you. And, yeah, pragmatic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay.